Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Throughout this series on the book of Jeremiah, we've been talking about a life of excellence. And Jeremiah is such a striking, though thoroughly biblical, paradox of what it means to live an excellent life. As we've discussed, from all accounts, it seems like Jeremiah's life is mired in failure. He's charged with a prophetic call by God to deliver a message to the people of Jerusalem to urge them to repent, but they don't repent. They persist in their ways, and the exact judgment that Jeremiah was sent to warn them to avoid comes upon them. And today we have perhaps one of the most challenging notions to a life of excellence, especially in our American culture of achievement and self-reliance and self-actualization. Today, we will see Jeremiah completely undone at the end of himself and yelling at God. In their book, The Critical Journey, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick describe the course of the spiritual life. And they recount the journey, not so much as this up and to the right. Those of us who have been at this a while, we know that it's not always positive directions, taking steps towards the next thing. But they recount the journey in sort of a spiraling, concentric circles, both inward and outward. And one key feature that they describe of the spiritual journey is that of the wall. Now maybe for some of you, you have run a marathon, and marathon runners often talk about the wall and hitting this experience where you feel like you've just been unplugged and you can't go on any longer. And though this happens to many marathoners, exercise scientists actually talk about the ability to avoid the wall altogether with proper training ahead of the run and then with proper nutrition during and ahead of the run. Now, this fits in nicely with our cultural assumptions, right? So when we think about the wall in terms of the spiritual journey, we we can almost put it in the category of the wall when it comes to a marathon. If we can just prepare, if we can just get ready, well, we can hack it. We can think better, we can work hard enough, we have the right information or technology, we can avoid this pain. But, and this is so very important for us today, What we're going to talk about and what Hagberg and Gulick are describing is not actually a wall that can be avoided. We all come to this wall if we persist in following Jesus, if we persist in pursuing a life that pursues excellence. And the thing with this wall is we can't avoid it. We can't go over it. We can't go around it. We can't go under it. We can't imagine it out of existence. We have to endure the pain of patiently going through it. And today, we're going to talk about what it means to to use Jeremiah's phrase and to use the title of Eugene Peterson's book, To Run With the Horses, When You Can't Run at All. Let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, When the priest, Pasher, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. Now Jeremiah throughout his life has an unpopular message to preach to his own people. And what's worse, Jeremiah is not the only prophet in town. 
There are other prophets proclaiming God's blessing, His peace over the people, and that God would not possibly judge His beloved Jerusalem, and that Jeremiah is wrong, and he's leading them astray, and he's just being kind of a wet blanket. Now think about it. If you had somebody in your life constantly delivering you bad news about your future, and then there was another person who was constantly telling you great things that were ahead of you, who would you rather be around? Jeremiah, as we know because we are privy to his conversations with God, has a word that is directly from the Lord. But he still must deal with convincing and charismatic prosperity gospel prophets who not only contradict Jeremiah, but seek to undermine and shame and discredit him. And here, Pasher, a leader in charge of the temple, and likely one of the most vocal of Jeremiah's opponents, uses his authority to have Jeremiah arrested and placed in stocks outside the Lord's temple. Think of how humiliating this is for Jeremiah. Not only is he arrested, not only is he beaten and has to endure the physical pain, but he's shamed, put on display in front of all the people who are coming to the temple. And it says that Jeremiah is released from the stocks. But all of this is conspiring. He's come to his wits end. Look at what he says in Jeremiah 20, beginning in verse 7. O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge upon him. These are striking and stirring words from Jeremiah. And the word that Jeremiah uses to say that the Lord enticed him here is actually better translated as the Lord seduced him. Jeremiah says, I've become a laughingstock to every person. They mock me. They call me Debbie Downer, old Mr. Violence and Destruction. Even my close friends hope I'm wrong or misguided and seek to take advantage of me. And here's the thing. As Jeremiah looks to the heavens, fist pumping, he says, and it's all because of you. God, it's all your fault. You have done this to me. And what's worse, Jeremiah goes on, if I don't say anything, if I, if I try not to speak in your name, I, this word that you have put in my heart is like a fire shut up in my bones. It burns me from the inside out. What we see here in Jeremiah chapter 20 is that Jeremiah has come to the end of himself. He's erupting with exhaustion and frustration. And he fin finishes his lament with a resolve to trust God. If you look at verses 11 through 13, it says, But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. If we think back to the first word that God spoke to Jeremiah, God said to Jeremiah, Look, they're going to try to get you off track, but I will not leave you. 
And so Jeremiah is holding on to some semblance of that first call. And he says, he says, The Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble, and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. And he finishes with this flourish of praise in verse 13. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. It seems like all is well here. Jeremiah had a brief moment of doubt, a brief moment of cursing the heavens, but now he's resolved to praise God. But lest we think that this marks some miraculous turning point for Jeremiah, that he's just much more spiritual than all of us are, look at verse 14. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A child is born to you, a son, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Wow. It is a vast understatement uh, to refer to what Jeremiah is going through here. What he's expressing here is coming to the wall. Jeremiah is undone. He's cursing the very day that he was born. He curses the one who delivers the news to his father that he had a son. He curses the fact that he's come into a world filled with toil and sorrow and shame. Old Testament scholar John Bright says of Jeremiah's words here, One can neither exaggerate the agony of spirit revealed here, nor improve on the words which Jeremiah found to express it. There is indeed little in all of literature that compares with this piece and nothing in the Bible, except perhaps the third chapter of Job. Now perhaps you've found yourself in this place. Perhaps you're there now. What we see from Jeremiah's situation is that so many things can bring us to the wall. So many things can conspire to bring us to this place of feeling that we are undone, of feeling like God himself has betrayed us, spiritual exhaustion, betrayal by people close to us, people in power wielding their authority for ill, the work that God has before us to do, the feeling that the life that we thought God promised us, that if we would serve Him and give Him our lives, that we would have a happy life and everything would go well for us and those that we love, this sense of betrayal when everything doesn't work out. What all this is demonstrating is that the wall is a place that we all come to as the world is filled with pain and sorrow. But what's going on here as well is that, and what uh, Janet Hagberg and, and Robert Gulick try to show us is that the wall in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it is often a place that God uses to transform and transfigure our pain. Look at what they say. The wall represents our meeting God's will face to face. We decide anew at the wall whether we are willing to surrender and let God direct our lives. Now, 
hear me on this, especially those of you who have endured profound pain, the kind of pain that causes you to seek the heavens and say, why did this happen to me? Why would this happen to somebody I love? This does not mean that every wall that we confront in our lives can be described as the will of God. But what the wall represents is, are those crises that cause us to question God. To cause us, like Jeremiah here, to say, what is going on? To question our part in the story that he is unfolding in the world. Hagberg and Gulick say of the wall, the wall differs for everyone. Fundamentally, it has to do with slowly breaking through the barriers we have built between our will and a newer awareness of God in our lives. We have spent our own energy. We have come to the end of our ropes. We are ready to learn about freedom, the liberty of living without grasping. We see in this text that we've read from Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is on the verge of giving up. And Hagberg and Gulick in their book called The Critical Journey describe common responses that so many of us live out as we are confronted with the wall. And I think these are really helpful both in a way of exploring how do we begin to walk through the wall, but also in seeing our attempts to minimize, our attempts to distance ourselves from God, our attempts to solve the wall by our own strength and wits. And so I'm going to go through these responses that they list. And the beautiful thing is they kind of give a name to it, but they also give you an image of how one tries to negotiate the wall. And so we're going to go through these, and maybe you can find yourself in one of these typical responses. The first one is that we try to impose our strong ego on the wall. We're smart. We're talented. Generally used to figuring things out. Things tend to work out. So we try to scale the wall. But what we find is as we're climbing, we never reach the top. We frustrate ourselves by not recognizing that ultimately, if God is to be God in our lives, we cannot remain in control. The second approach to the wall, we self-deprecate. We never fully experience God's love, and people with this mode of resistance often compare themselves to others, or they place impossible standards upon themselves, and they never have this sense of rest and security in the love of God. The image for this mode of resistance is, is trying to tunnel underneath the wall. The third response that we often have to the wall can be described as guilt and shame ridden. Now perhaps because of the church that we grew up in or family hurt, we reject God in favor of a spirituality that we can manage and makes us comfortable. The image Hagberg and Gulick used to illustrate this kind of response is actually dancing before the wall. Substitutes for God himself might include things like self-actualization, constant traveling and, and wandering and exploring, a sort of vague spirituality, whether it be like positive thinking, trying to perfect oneself, to be one's best self, an obsession with good physical condition, peace projects, and moral codes. And friends, I think this in many ways is the default operating system of our culture. Substituting things that are in themselves good, things like spirituality, health, achievement, Substituting those things for God. The fourth response that we often offer at the wall is we try to intellectualize. We try to rationalize, to explain away the wall, that it's a game of wits, a puzzle to be solved. We try to look through the wall to see what's really going on. Intellectuals must learn 
counterintuitively to be vessels filled with God rather than filled with our own strength and intelligence. The next response is we, we try to achieve our way to, to negotiate the wall. We think we can build a higher wall. And then once we build up our own wall, we can just jump over the wall that confronts us. But the wall we build never reaches the height of the wall that we face. And the wall demands that we allow ourselves to be healed and to learn what's so often so difficult for those of us who are achievers, patience. It is likely that our encounter with the wall will call us not to do more, not to try to expand and to grow and to achieve more, but will call us to less. The next response that we see is the doctrinaire response. We think if we can just think rightly about God, then all of our problems will be solved. We try to drill holes through the wall to show what's really going on and that what's really on the other side of the wall is what we've always thought about God. But what we find in, in drilling those holes, rather than diminishing the wall, is that we diminish our own security and what we thought we knew about God and what we've been holding on to. The next response is the ordained response. Those of us with spiritual authority can sometimes get to a point where we feel we are too special, too endowed with too much God life to be bothered with the wall. We simply think we can destroy it, that the wall is designed for other people. We have to realize that the only way to face the wall is through it, painfully relinquishing our own wills and surrender to the will of God. And the last one, the response I think that is so common in our culture, and I added this one in myself, is the self-medicated response. Now, this is not a phenomenon unique to our age. You think about chemicals that can alter our state of being, can alter our perception on the world. But in our day and age, there are more tools that are more readily available and also socially acceptable. We can try to bury the wall under a mountain of entertainment, of scrolling, of, of, and we never really get in tune with our own souls because we drown them out with so much noise. When painful things arise, we check out. I don't know if you see yourself in any of these responses, but I hope they become a, a lens, a device for you to begin to understand what God might be asking you and calling you to confront in your own life and some of your default operating system responses to that crisis. The journey through the wall, as Jeremiah shows us, is painful. It is a finding of self through renunciation of self-reliance. As Jesus says, it is a finding of our lives by losing them. It involves allowing God to heal our deep sense of shame or our lack of control, not by minimizing it or by wishing it away, but by bringing it into the light. Our journey through the wall invites us to see that our attempts at over-functioning for others in an effort to change or protect them are not selfless service, but rather the indication of our own low self-esteem and our own the, the low regard that we think that God has for us. And we've briefly surveyed some of the ways that we try to circumvent the wall, to go over it, under it, to just break it down and smash it, to look through it or to imagine it in a way. And Jeremiah, in his utter despair, gives us a model to begin our journey, not trying to negotiate and circumvent the wall, but to actually follow the call of the Good Shepherd through it. This call to walk through the wall is both healing and transformative. 
Now, it may seem counterintuitive to us, but this moment of Jeremiah's desolation is actually the beginning of his own journey to healing. He turns to God with all of his vitriol and righteous indignation. He brings it all before the Lord. You see, I'm convinced that for many of us, we never face the wall until we absolutely smash into it through failure, through self-destruction or burnout, because we are not living our lives with a measure of depth or attention. Jeremiah is a model of an excellent life because of the fullness of his life before God. Think about David. David's called a man after God's own heart, not because he did everything perfectly, far, far from it. Rather, David lived the whole of his life before God. It's why we have the Psalms. Jacob was called Israel, one who struggles and wrestles with God, not as a reward for good behavior, but as the result of a lifelong struggle with God. And it turned out that Jacob, in the midst of this struggle, would never walk the same again. Jesus on the cross is wounded for our healing, and we often think of this as transactional, as if there was a price, some cosmic price to be paid, and Jesus paid it. And that's surely part of it, but it doesn't quite capture the full extent of how Jesus is wounded for our healing. Jesus surrenders to the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus gives up control and autonomy, allowing himself to be arrested and tried, himself not uttering a single word. Jesus in his trial, as he is cursed, condemned, and scourged, he lays bare the reality of sin. Paul says of Jesus that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says that Christ Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus, in going to the cross, is exposing, laying bare sin and evil in all of its horror. Jesus doesn't just bring his own pain before God, though he brings that as well as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He brings the suffering and the broken dreams of the entire world, every grief, every heartache, all of the sin, and all of the brokenness of the world, and he lays it bare before God. And yet still, in this place, with his dying breaths, he does not return curse for curse, he does not return curses heaped upon him with the curses of God. Rather, he utters with his dying breaths, he utters blessing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He accepts the world for what it is. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say that God so loved the world as it should be. God so loved the world as it could be. It says that God so loved the world Jesus accepts the world as it is, and he meets us in that sinful, broken place. And in doing so, he demonstrates the inexhaustibility of his love for the world. In having his hands nailed to the cross, arms outstretched, the instrument of Jesus' apparent demise becomes the means of his greatest blessing. As he lays bare the sin of the world, as he brings the fullness of our humanity before God, and we respond with curse upon curse and abandonment, Jesus, arms outstretched, embraces the entire world in love. 
He goes down to our depths, the grave into the abyss, and proclaims once and for all that the love of God is stronger than the power of death, that there is nothing in all of creation that could ever separate us from His love. No shame, no hurt, no pain, no sin. There's nothing that He has not brought into the light of His love, and thus no hurt, no pain, no sin, no shame that Jesus has not healed upon the cross. The resurrection of Jesus shows that His love on the cross is not just a model, some nice example for us to follow, but it is a power. And the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us, and His love that makes all things, even the cross, new, longs to bring healing and life and transformation to our lives. Ecclesia. Jesus ripped the curtain that was in the temple that stood as a sign of the separation between humanity and God. He ripped it in two, but he did not tear down the walls that await us. And it's not because he's not powerful enough or because he doesn't love us or because he doesn't want to protect us from pain. But as Jesus shows us on the cross in journeying through the wall, we find God. We find ourselves, we find love and transformation come through suffering, not in spite of it. We find the way of the cross, the way of awareness, the way of forgiveness, of acceptance, and ultimately the way of love. When we find ourselves at the end of our ropes, like Jeremiah does here in Jeremiah chapter 20, we find Jesus. And we find that there is nothing Nothing that we could ever do, nothing that could ever be done to us that He is not healed. Dallas Willard says God's address is at the end of your rope. So what do we do? If you're at the wall right now, if you feel forgotten by God, or if it feels like your circumstances with friends or with family mean that all is lost, stop trying to negotiate the wall and lean in. Start with God. Start by trying to mine down where is the pain. Where am I trying to hide my own shame in the corner? Where am I refusing to surrender? Where is God wanting to do more in me and through me, but I'm resisting? Now, for those of us who aren't at the wall currently, I want to encourage you to begin preparing now. Now, we talked about the marathoners. We talked about the way that they prepare to, to push through the wall, or to avoid it altogether. We've also talked about how when it comes to the spiritual journey, there is no avoiding the wall. But we can prepare. We can live into habits and rhythms right now that prepare us to face the wall, not in spite of God, but with God. I think there's two that stand out to me. First, silence and solitude. Allowing yourself to be honest with your own thoughts. Allowing yourself to hear your own thoughts. For many of us, we race around from thing to thing and are, are highly sensitive to the suggestion that the pace that we run at may not be the, the run with the horse's God-ordained pace of excellence. But what would it mean for us to embrace the, the silence and the solitude that awaits us where God meets us so readily? So first, I just want to encourage you, carve out times where you are alone with God and you're paying attention to what He might be saying to you. Second, I want to encourage you to keep a journal. Your journal may not be encyclopedic in length. It could just be short 
reflections on what God might be saying to you, but it does allow you to be present with your thoughts and to be present with God. I know it's not for everybody, but I do think it's a great habit and a great gift to be able to reflect upon what God might be doing in your life. The last thing I'll say is this. How good is God that this lament from Jeremiah this complete sense of being undone that Jeremiah utters and cursing the heavens is right in the middle of the Bible. God is not interested in some saccharine version of us, the well-dressed and well-mannered, good answers saying Jesus to every question that we're asked. God wants us heart and soul, in all of our praise and thanksgiving, and in all of our doubts and anger shouted at the heavens. You may be at the wall. You may be cursing God for what's unfolded in your life, but what you'll find in that place of pain and desolation is Jesus. Right there with you, walking with you, carrying you. God's address is at the end of your rope. When you find yourself at the wall, Jesus has been through the wall before you and he walks through it with you again and again. Trust him. Give up on your sense of self-reliance. Give up on your default responses and find that Jesus, through the pain, through the suffering, through the sense of letting go, is bringing us into fullness of life. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.